Today's episode is brought to you by Ethan Chatonnier's Singer Distance, a debut that Matt Bell calls one of the rarest and best kinds of books, a truly thrilling story driven by big ideas and bold writing, whose gripping mysteries only deepen as the plot thickens. In charting an alternate history in which human civilization has made contact with Martians, but struggled for years to understand their most recent message. Along with themes of loneliness, exploration, and love, the novel explores how far we'll go to communicate with a distant civilization and the great lengths we'll travel to connect here on Earth. Says Erica Swiler, Chatonnier looks at the sky and people with equal wonder, and the result is deeply moving. Singer Distance is a book for readers of Sagan, lovers of paradoxes, anyone who's ever looked up. Singer Distance is out now from Tin House. Sometimes there are episodes that are very obviously in conversation with each other that might reflect a question that I'm having around writing or literature or life that doesn't have a simple answer and continues to ask itself. For instance, what can changing how we tell our stories do to help us as humans imagine us back into a world that isn't fully humanized, human-centric, and shot through only with human concerns to such a degree that it jeopardizes our very futures? I think of my conversations with Talia Field, Jeff Vandermeer, Richard Powers, and Elvia Wilk in prose, the crafting with Ursula conversations with Karen Joy Fowler and Isaac Yuen, the poetry conversations with Jory Graham, Forrest Gander, and Arthur Z, all being very different and discreet conversations that are nevertheless in conversation with each other around this question. Similarly with questions of empathy in literature, you could say this question has lingered for many years from when I first talked to Leslie Jameson about the empathy exams through my conversations with Solma Sharif and Natalie Diaz to my very recent conversation with Elaine Castillo. None of this is by design on my part. It isn't planned out or aimed for. And usually I don't notice these thematic threads until I'm looking back. Yet I do wonder if I'm at the beginning of or in the middle of one now. When I look at most of my recent conversations with novelists, with Sheila Hetty, with Hernan Diaz, with today's guest, Billy Ray Belcourt, and perhaps most on point, the carrier bag theory of fiction conversation with Lydia Yuknovich for Crafting with Ursula. And when I look forward to three of the upcoming novelists on the show, none of these novelists have written novels that are novel-like. All of them could in different ways, be considered novels that are anti-novels or novels reaching toward a new form of the novel. I say all of this because I wonder if it is a coincidence that I've lined these all up in this way. It could be, but I think it is also true that I myself, as much as I love traditional storytelling, as much as I love disappearing into the fictive spell of the journey of an individual protagonist on a quest, I also feel uneasy about the ways this sort of story feels aligned formally with both the ways we tell our histories 
and the way we propose problem solving into our future that feel connected more to the problems with the world than the solutions. Perhaps my favorite form is the quote-unquote poet's novel, not necessarily a conventionally told tale told lyrically, though I love that too, but a poet bringing a different sense of time and voice to a story, a poet bringing different ways to move story forward other than plot. But before I read poet Billy Ray Belcourt's latest book, his first novel, if you can call it that, I didn't know how much I would love a poet's anti-novel that is also a novel of theory, a novel that has a sociological praxis, a sexual praxis of that theory. A Minor Chorus, Billy Ray Belcourt's novel, is, is truly a highlight read for me this year, and I'm excited to share this conversation. Quickly before we begin, if you enjoy Between the Covers, which perhaps, like these novelists, doesn't really conform to the podcast form if the podcast has a form, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Every supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode. Every supporter can participate in the collective brainstorm of who to invite into the future. And there are a ton of other possible benefits to choose from. The bonus audio archive with readings by everyone from Natalie Diaz to Laylee Longsoldier to Dion Brand. Becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, and much more. Check it all out at patreon.com slash between the covers and enjoy today's episode with Billy Ray Belcourt. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, essayist, and now novelist Billy Ray Belcourt. Belcourt is from the Driftpile Cree Nation in northern Alberta, received his undergraduate degree in comparative literature at the University of Alberta, and was named a Rhodes Scholar, the first First Nations Rhodes Scholar, pursuing a master's degree at Oxford University in women's studies with a thesis that focused on indigenous women in social resistance movements, titled Decolonial Site, Indigenous Feminist Protest in the World to Come. Returning to Canada, Belcourt completed a PhD in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta, whose thesis 
The Conspiracy of Indian Joy was both an autobiographical and theoretical examination of the ways indigenous peoples lead joyful lives despite and in opposition to the long history of colonization and its continued attempts to flatten their emotional lives. In 2019, Belcourt won an Inspire Award, which is the highest honor the indigenous community bestows on its own leaders. And in 2020, he joined the University of British Columbia's creative writing program as associate professor in indigenous creative writing. Belcourt's 2017 debut book of poems, This Wound is a World, was a finalist for the 2018 Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry, was named by CBC Books as the best Canadian poetry collection of 2017, was also named the most significant book of poetry in English by an emerging Indigenous writer at the 2018 Indigenous Voices Awards, and was the winner of Canada's most prestigious poetry award, the Griffin Poetry Prize, making Belcourt the youngest recipient ever at the age of 23 years old. He followed up his debut with the best-selling poetry collection, Indian Coping Mechanisms, Notes from the Field, a finalist for the 2020 Lambda Literary Award for Gay Poetry. Indian Coping Mechanisms was a library journal, CBC Books, and Writers' Trust of Canada Best Book of 2019, a collection that, according to Open Book, cements Belcourt as one of the most imaginative and creative writers in the country. Belcourt's third book, his debut nonfiction, A History of My Brief Body, was released as memoir in Canada and as an essay collection in the United States, but really sits between genres, philosophical, political, poetic, autobiographic, and scholarly. A History of My Brief Body was a number one national bestseller, a finalist for the 2020 Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction, a finalist for the 2021 Lambda Literary Award for Gay Memoir, and received the Hubert Evans Prize for Nonfiction. Sheila Hetty says of Belcourt's nonfiction debut, A history of my brief body puts the reader at the center of a deeply serious struggle with language, with sexuality, with race and colonial Canada, and with love and joy and a life in art. It is about the attempt to stand in a center one has created, all while feeling the impossibility of ever doing so, and also wondering if maybe one shouldn't. This is a passionate and vital autobiography about the intellect, the culture, and the flesh, as it bears its assaults and preserves a true light. So it is with great pleasure to welcome Billy Ray Belcourt to discuss his latest book, Yet Another Shift in Genre, Belcourt's debut novel, A Minor Chorus, which is already long-listed for the 2022 Giller Prize for Excellence in Canadian Fiction, whose previous winners have included Alice Munro, Michael Ondaje, and Margaret Atwood. Book Riot proclaims that poet Billy Ray Belcourt's first novel is unsurprisingly a genre-defined masterpiece. It's academic and anti-academic, full of poetry, longing, theory, and philosophy. Library Journal in its Star Review says, This book registers less as a minor chorus than symphony, Belcourt's boldest, freest, and most linguistically assured work yet. Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, calls it a breathtaking and hypnotic achievement. And finally, Alicia Elliott says, 
The Literary Child of Rachel Cusk's Outline Trilogy and James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, this novel builds on both and is yet still something so new. It has the guts to center indigenous queer life as worthy of serious intellectual and artistic inquiry, which, of course, it always has been. We will be reading and rereading and learning from a minor chorus for decades to come. Welcome to Between the Covers, Billy Ray Belcourt. Thank you so much. So pleased to be here. So I, I want to start with genre and the inherited legacies and ancestries of genre, especially given how you've now written in each one, but written in each one in a way that never conforms to the formal expectations of the genre in question. As a way to talk about the novel and what your thoughts are on the novel as a form, I'd like to first just quote some things you've said about your work before now that I found compelling and, and generative. For instance, you've said that you came to poetry and theory at the same time, to Foucault and Denez Smith at the same time, for instance, and you feel like poetry and theory are streets in the same part of a city, streets that sometimes intersect. You've also said, to continue the uh, city metaphor, that there are many back alleys between your essays and your poems, that your poems can be essayistic and your essays poetic, that while your last book, your memoir, was marketed as such, that it would more accurately be called Poems in Essays. You've also talked about how you like the term auto theory and the blending of the autobiographical and the theoretical, and you've taught a class on politics and form all of which makes me curious about how the move to fiction has been. What politics do you confront in moving into the novel form and what attracted you to the form in the first place? Perhaps I'll begin with Roland Barthes, as I so often do, mm -hmm. French philosopher. And in the translation, the recent translation of uh, the preparation of the novel by Kate Briggs, in her translator's note, there's a point about how Bart's nearing the end of his life that he didn't know, of course, was the end of his life, was transfixed with what was what he called the fantasy of the novel, which is less about the material object of the novel and more so about the mode of living that novel writing suggests, which is a total commitment to art and to literature. In 2018, I had my own bout of fascination with the novel. I tended to write a novel and ultimately failed. And then later on, when I was reflecting on that period of failed writing, I thought, what if my transfiction with the genre of the novel is the story? What if that's the novel? And then I had to think, well, why? <laughs> Why was I so, uh, you know, determined to write a novel? And why did I fail? And then I thought, of course, of the history of the novel, at least the Western novel, as one that is bound up with the project of the individual. It has an individualizing function, which runs in contradistinction to the spirit of a lot of revolutionary struggle and social protest and also of course decolonization so i decided that 
if I was going to write a novel, it had to be a record of in part my failure to do so because of this literary history of the individual. Well, I love how your memoir already contains your failed attempts to write a novel, attempts to write an autobiographical novel. But I was I was really fascinated. I, I had stumbled across you mentioning Kate Briggs's translation note to Roland Barthes' final project, a book called The Preparation of the Novel. So I, I looked into, just curious, I looked into the preparation of the novel a little bit, which is eight elliptical plans for a novel, for a new way of writing, and for a future book that he imagined called Vita Nova, New Life, that he never wrote. Um, and I wondered if perhaps the preparation for a novel, um, the preparation for a means to begin a new writing practice, and even a new way of living implied by the title of the novel he imagined, and, and something he completed just before he died, this book, The Preparation of the Novel. Perhaps the preparation of the novel was the point, not the novel. He simulates the trial of novel writing and then documents the creative process along the way. And like you, he finds difficulty in transitioning from his familiar way of writing to this imagined new way of writing. And he then explores the conditions under which other writers have engaged in novel making before him. So the book he produces becomes about bookmaking and the decision-making process of novel writing, which I think your book shares a spirit with that in many ways. It feels like that spirit connects also your novel and your memoir and that we, we see the process of you looking for and puzzling out and abandoning forms. Even within the new novel of yours, the main character is searching for a new form for the novel. You're, it's not just you searching, but your, your protagonist within the novel is also searching. So before we talk about A Minor Chorus specifically, it, it, I was just curious if there was an interest in Roland Barthes beyond this phenomenon here, because he appears frequently in your work. Um, is he an important writer for you in a, more, in a broader sense than this um, question of novel writing? I think the text of his I'm most influenced by is his morning diary. And that book as well is described not as a book, but as a hypothesis of a book desired. I think that a minor chorus could also be, be described in that way. Yeah. Um, it, and that it's, it's working out a hypothesis rather than laying one out or pursuing a hypothesis to a logical end. But what strikes me most about Morning Diary is that it re represents a writing practice that is indivisible from grief. And I suppose I've transposed that spirit to the colonial context where grief as an Indigenous person is ever present. One of the theses, I suppose, that runs throughout my work is the, the paradox of having to live in a world that one does not want or that one did not build for themselves. That's the indigenous condition. And of course it is filled with grief. And so I take a kind of inspiration from Bart's project in Morning Diary to, the, to write into the unwritability of grief. And I hope that 
that's what the work does as well in, in my case. Could we hear the opening section uh, of the book called A Problem of Form? Mm -hmm. A Problem of Form. It was a late afternoon at the start of August when I went to the university to meet up with River, a dear friend and graduate student in the Department of Sociology who hailed from a reserve to the South to make sense of the desire to remake my life. I wanted to leave academia. This thought, which wasn't so much intrusive as it was a response to an ongoing crisis of creativity permeated my days. I was waiting in front of one of the oldest buildings on campus, a neoclassical hallmark of the humanities quad called Old Arts. The entrance was replete with tribute to the architecture of antiquity. On either side of the steps were pillars, and above each of those, another pair. Foliage sprawled across the facade, illuminating rather than obscuring the ornate brickwork. Because it was outside the normal academic year, there was no one else around me. The effect of all of this was that in my Cree body in the 21st century, I was a historical anomaly. On this day, I was fine with projecting my feelings of alienation onto what was so clearly a product of a longing for a heroic white past, however mythological. In fact, it felt rebellious to do so. It wasn't that I had been wronged by the university per se. Rather, something inside me shifted in the last year, such that I was no longer moved to play by its rules. I was meant to be writing a dissertation. But what the sentences I'd been compiling in a document really added up to was a depression diary or a lover's discourse. I'd been writing about the politics of race and sadness, yes, but most days this research topic was more accurately a kind of self-directed behavioral therapy. I'd been experiencing life as a problem of form. It is difficult to live in a world that corrodes freedom. The shape of my days was fuzzy, imprecise. My body took on that fuzziness. I wanted to take a sledgehammer to the past to let in the shimmer of a light I didn't know was there all along. It seemed unavoidable that I now wanted my writing not to advance an institutional body of knowledge, as is the case with a dissertation, but instead to invent an exit route, to make something out of nothing to prop up a landmark for a place that was nowhere and everywhere. At first, I assumed that because I felt both uprooted and stuck, I was going through a more acute depressive episode than usual. But I realized that I had been overtaken by new ambitions, a more consuming kind of hunger, a hunger for another way of being in the world. I couldn't unsee everything my gut told me I was missing out on. It was still summer nonetheless, and there was still the greenery, which was so lush and overwhelming, it was something of an argument for optimism. A reminder that I had to be alert to the beauty in excess, the beauty in things that quietly endured despite their unbeautiful context. If I admired my own abundances, my own little rebellions against subjugation, I reasoned, I could learn to be as alive as possible. It seems silly I hadn't come to this conclusion sooner. 
been listening to Billy Ray Belcourt read from his debut novel, A Minor Chorus. So the main character in this book, from the get-go, from these opening words that you just read, is wanting to bust out of inherited forms. He acknowledges that the university hasn't wronged him per se. He has an amazing thesis advisor, in fact, who encourages him to write outside of expectations, who doesn't see a problem with his thesis being more like a depression diary or a lover's discourse, another nod to Roland Barthes. Um, and he has this great supportive friend, River, a, a bond you described as both citational, that they read the same scholars, and circumstantial, that they are the only two Indians, let alone the only two queer Indians in their politics and gender course. But it seems like the university as form is the problem, that he didn't want his efforts, as you just said, however benign the atmosphere, to advance an institutional body of knowledge. Um, perhaps the most immediately apparent way your novel pushes against genre and form are its autofictional elements, the ways this character feels both uprooted and stuck in a way that feels similar to the ways you yourself have described your own time at Oxford, for instance. It feels like the character's life is at least meant to rhyme with your real life. And without being reductive and asking, is he you? <laughs> Does his experience in the opening pages, his need to find an exit route from this track of knowledge production and the questions he wants to pursue that he has no answer for, do these experiences reflect your own experiences in some regard or, or echo them? So I did complete my PhD, unlike the protagonist of the novel, but I did consider leaving at a number of points throughout the process. I think it was after coursework during my PhD, where I realized that I was being conscripted into a particular vision of intellectual and institutional life in which diversity and equity didn't mean that I was freer, but rather that the institution looked better. So that's a problem of both concept and aesthetics. And it made me seriously grapple with the kind of future I wanted and whether the university, generally speaking, could bring about something like indigenous freedom. There's a remark also in, later in that chapter where the protagonist says that the university isn't interested in giving the line back, for example. So that means that it's ultimately not interested in indigenous struggles for land. So in the period after I failed to write a novel, it occurred to me that I was, if I was going to write a novel, I should begin with my own emotional texture, partly because there are so few novels with protagonists that are queer and indigenous. And I thought if I had anything to say in the space of the novel, which is so vast, it had to be about a life like mine. So I inserted essentially invented lives and details into 
something resembling my life and my interests. When you were in conversation with uh, Oneida Nation writer John Hill, he brought up that he thought maybe there was a new trend in indigenous, in contemporary indigenous writing with the use of avatars. He, he brought up Tommy Pico and his character Teebs and Joshua Whitehead with Johnny Appleseed in relationship to you and, and what we're discussing around this, these autofictional elements. I, I wondered if that if there was anything compelling there in him raising that, um, to you, do you, do you see, um, that form a particular usefulness to autofic autofiction as being a particularly useful, um, troubling a form or new form for indigenous writers without obviously speaking for indigenous writers in in, in a, in a general sense. So there's a sociological way that indigenous literature is taken up by ge the general reading public that suggests that we are incapable of imagination, that certain creative powers aren't available to us. And I think that autofiction surprisingly can be one way to subvert that reading habit because the blurring of reality and fiction is the point. That's how meaning is produced. The ongoing question of whether the book reflects a, a lived life. I wanted, I think, the book to feel non-fictional, partly because the lives represented aren't out of the ordinary. Northern Alberta, the where the most of the book takes place, is so overdetermined by history, such that everyone lives a historical life. Yet there's so little discourse or discussion about that. And so I wanted to bring in almost journalistic or autoethnographic energy to the novel without, of course, reifying the anthropological interests in Indigenous life. Yeah. That's a good segue for my next question, because in, in certain places in, in your books and also speaking out in the world, you, you talk about what you wouldn't want a novel to be. For instance, in your memoir, you say, the aesthetic function of the novel, to my mind at least, is to whisper, to hide critique, to grab a reader by the throat with an invisible hand. I want no part in this. My provocation will be barefaced. I won't trick anyone. Maybe what I want is to be violent in an epistemic sense. The blood will be not on my hands, but on my words. This is why I'm a poet before all else. And you've also talked about how the novel as you've mentioned here today, is meant to be shaped around an individual subject and an individual consciousness in a way that forecloses the possibility of representing queer indigeneity or indigeneity at all. In a similar vein, in an Australian podcast, you talked about how novelists are known to say no to the world, that novelists spend a lot of time alone at their desks, shut away, 
which seems counter to some of your political beliefs of being out in and engaged with the world. In your memoir, you list the titles of novels you tried to write, Critical Race Theory, The Museum of Political Depression, A Beast of Burden is a Beast Nonetheless, Bad Lover, and It's Lonely to Be Alive. But the actual title of the novel you did write, A Minor Chorus, I think really captures what this character is reaching for that is fundamentally different than all the ways he sees novels being written. And I was hoping maybe, which you've sort of nodded to already just now, but if you could talk to us a little more about what our protagonist decides to do when he leaves the university and how this relates to his imaginings of a different type of book. So after already having decided to leave the university, the protagonist after a period of dullness, realizes that if he's going to write a novel, it has to be about where he's come from because he wants some light shed on who he might become. But also, and more importantly, because there's a whole chorus of voices there that indicate something about the colonial condition. I think the protagonist says that he wants to write an ethnography of sadness and possibility, which is ultimately an autobiography of a town. And so I think the protagonist and by extension me, I've been putting sort of contradictory concepts together to see what kind of new possibility possibilities emerge and i think maybe again that's partly my poetic nature because that's what metaphor is it's a relation of proximity to two images that are unlike making them produce something new so your, your character in the minor chorus says, my theoretical framework was that place governs the practice of self-fabrication. And you, the real you, has said elsewhere that you knew that with this fourth book, you needed to write about Northern Alberta, um, which suggests perhaps that you weren't ready to before, that perhaps whatever self-fabrication would come from returning to that place or space, maybe it required some preparation or some time. And I wondered if I was reading into that, a subtext that isn't there, but is there a way that writing into Northern Alberta was delayed until now when you, when perhaps you found a form to be able to go and, and write it? I think you're right. So it's both, it both had to do with form and with personality. At that point, I felt like I had exhausted the materials of my own life. Because of that, more space opened up. There was another window onto the world, which revealed Northern Alberta. And I also, as you're suggesting, needed a specific kind of form to do justice to the polyvocality of the people who live there. 
it's the book. I don't think it's giving away anything. It's that the book is a series of interviews and conversations rather than a more conventional unfolding of plot. And speak to us a little bit about the interviewing. How much of that is you imagining yourself or imagining your protagonist as an ethnographer of the reserve and how much of it is you actually interviewing and then taking transcripts. Um, And if so, if it's the latter, if you are actually interviewing yourself and then um, folding real interviews in a fictional way into your novel, talk to us a little bit about that, the emotion of that and also the craft of that. All the interviews are imagined interviews, so none of them actually took place. I, I hadn't actually gone and done any kind of ethnographic work or field work. So it's all imagined field work. Mm-hmm. And I think importantly, one of the conceits of the novel is that most of the traumatic experiences that are discussed occurred in the past. That was so that the fact of these characters' abilities to survive were most important rather than cater to those who are hungry for depictions of indigenous suffering. And so to me, in order to do that, I needed a formal technique like interviewing. And in order to do it with a philosophical resonance, I had to allow myself to imagine that these characters could theorize about what happened to them. Well, let's spend another couple minutes with theory and theorizing before we talk about the body and embodiment, because in a way it is theory, this theoretical framework of place and your theory of a new novel that brings our character's body back to his place of origin. But when you were in conversation with with a fiction writer and creative writing teacher and chairman of the Federated Indians of great in Rancheria in California, Greg Saris. He asked you about your use of academic and scholarly language in your work in relation to how your work is received in your community because he says he is often lovingly made fun of as the quote-unquote cousin professor who uses white men's language. And here, <laughs> and here we're, we're in a, a novel where someone who is leaving an academic world but still steeped in a lot of the analysis and the language of it is returning to a place of origin and and encountering people who have varying degrees of relation to that language and that analysis. Do you see something similar to Greg Saris for you as a writer? Um, Or is that not at all your experience in, in writing these books about queer indigeneity that are erudite as well as moving and accessible at the same time 
I could ask a question like this in relation to the the letter to my cook, my grandmother in my memoir, because I know that though she may not understand the language I'm using, she'll be able to feel the emotional vibrations that that language produces, that that's important. And the protagonist also reflects in a minor chorus on this conundrum as well. He says something like, you know, why am I bringing the language of analysis to Northern Alberta when it can be so alienating? And he says, well, just like we don't get to choose who we love, we also don't get to choose which kinds of language envelop us like another layer of skin. Mm. Maybe that was my way of circumventing that argument or anticipating that argument and expressing my own inability to break <laughs> from that language as a, a writer and a person. And it, again, to return to the protagonist in the novel, there's another moment where he says, the first time I was ever moved by language was when I read queer theory and that queer theorists were using language in order to rebel against the ways that language has been used against us as queer people as a kind of weapon. And so there's both an admiration for the beauty of the language of queer theory and a recognition that it can be used as part of a collective struggle. Well, I love how I think in all of your work, poetry and prose, you you do bring in other voices, citing scholars and thinkers and writers from Dion Brand to Jose Esteban Munoz, that this citational practice within your lines or sentences, they, it feels to me like another sort of minor chorus in your work. It seems to situate in you in a field of voices that places your own experience and your own desire for liberation among others who come from very different subject positions from you, but perhaps are aiming toward a similar future. That here in the book called The Minor Chorus, I was curious if you if you could speak to placing that alongside the the testimonies and the interviews, how you see those co-inhabiting in, in the novel. I think my approach to citation is indebted on the one hand to my academic training. Humanities graduate students are always seeking in relation to those in their fields. It's a kind of cohabitation of an intellectual space. But on the other hand, I was incredibly moved by the citational notes in Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. Mm. The name is appearing in the margins rather than simply inside the text or relegated to the back of the book. That felt to me like a way of being in relation to those who have shaped her thinking without subordinating them. That's one of the ongoing problems of academic training, especially in the humanities, 
where sometimes it can feel like you have to subordinate the voices of others in order to emerge yourself as a singular voice. One of the other reasons why I grew disinterested in and, and trepidatious of academic life. And so in the book, I wanted to have the chorus that is the characters, but also the chorus that is the intellectuals to whom I am indebted. And so I suppose one could argue that there are two minor choruses operating simultaneously. Well, maybe a flip side to Greg Saris's question is something you brought up when you were on a panel with a Palestinian novelist, Adania Shibley, who was a past guest on this show, um, where you mentioned that a lot of people on the reservation don't know its history as an open-air prison. And yet the main character in your novel encounters some drift pile Cree who are beginning to employ a different language and theoretical sociopolitical framing where they see themselves in a very different way. One that seems more oriented toward liberation than accommodation, let's say. I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but, but you say in the book, what would people say if they were empowered to theorize about their happiness and misery if the sociological imagination was available to all of us, what kinds of truths would surface? And I guess I was hoping maybe you could speak to that a little more. Both the way colonial erasure can reproduce itself within Native communities themselves, but also the suggestion that perhaps theorizing or theoretical analysis might be a way out, which is so fascinating because I love how the character is trying to find an exit route from academia and yet, and yet is also suggesting theorizing not in an academic setting, but theorizing outside of an academic setting as being a, another form of an exit route from a, another sort of prison. Mm -hmm. I think the book is a work of sociological fiction, but that it is so unsexy to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe that's a more appropriate subtitle than a novel. But when I was writing the book, I realized that I had to turn my attention to characters who were already living out some kind of vision of liberation, despite perhaps their inability to describe their activities of living as such. That was important to me because we don't have to go elsewhere. We don't have to leave the reserve to enact decolonial tenants or tactics. But the power of caring for one another emerges organically. And that that's worthy of theoretical and literary consideration. The character of Lena, for example, is a mother who the character says is mothering with whatever materials are available to her, but nonetheless doing so in a way that attempts to make her children's joy infinite. And that is incredibly 
philosophically significant. You also make a nod to a reproduction of colonial modes of being within Native communities when talking about resource extraction and how the last jobs were in the oil fields. It's a topic that I also touched upon with Jake Skeets and Natalie Diaz when they were on the show also. In a minor chorus, you say, I believe there's a story here about how people are made to participate in the production of their own misery. Something that feels like it almost demands analysis to puzzle its way out. Um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts in that regard, in the ways that the last jobs are, are just that. So that line was actually one of the first hypotheses that became the infrastructure for the book. A number of the characters remain in miserable conditions, partly because they can't see a way out, and also because they might not necessarily want a way out. And I was thinking in relation to something that you know, Judith Butler argued, we remain attached to, to difficult objects and things and situations because the psychological investment is so intense that it seems counter, counterintuitive or, or counterproductive to, to relinquish those attachments. And that seemed to me to be enough for enough emotional material for a novel. And I think I lost, I lost your question. <laughs> oh, no, it's just the question about the quote that you're mentioning about uh, participating in the production of your own misery and also the only jobs being extractive jobs, it, jobs that I think would be the most emblematic of sort of uh, colonial capitalist extractive behavior. So the way that, say, like the Navajo are, are so uh, involved in, in coal um, or or oil pipelines or fracking in northern Canada and the Northwest Territories, um, which, I mean, there's an irony there that makes me think of the need for an analysis to maybe as a first step to another way when no way right. when no way is presented, <laughs> presenting itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So yes, the town that the town in the novel is based on is described sometimes as the gateway to the oil sands in northeastern Alberta. It's a vast amount of territory but it's all now so incredibly governed by an oil economy such that people have to leave to go work in the oil sands in order to make a living. It's an incredibly emotional issue because people's qualities of living are at stake. Anecdotally, a lot of people that I know from the area end up voting conservative or conservatively because resource extraction 
in the conservative party have become synonymous. People have to, especially indigenous people, have to vote against themselves essentially because the opportunities for living a good life have become so winnowed. And I do think that the ability to cultivate a critical consciousness is bound up in this because that ability is not democratically distributed. It's unevenly distributed so that people can induce the conditions for their own misery within a within an, an overall structure of colonialism where that becomes possible. Well, I, I picked out another really brief section I was hoping you'd read. Mm-hmm. Growing up, Mary and her siblings and cousins weren't afraid of imaginary monsters. Everywhere lurked the more realistic threat of white men whom they feared would snatch them away from their families and put them in one of the residential schools along the lake or worse. She and my cookum were lucky, Mary explained, because they stayed home to help raise the babies. Their brothers, however, weren't. Their generation was distrustful of everyone who stared at them as if the purpose of sight were to elicit disgust. They felt as if they were being stalked and ignored at the same time. She could go on and on, she said, enumerating every injustice, every racist act that befell them, but there would be no language left inside her if she did. And what good would that do to her? It was any old weekday, and we were in the middle of a genocide. No one, however, lived differently because of this. Not even us, the captive and killable. Or was it that we'd never stopped running? That we couldn't distinguish between being alive and living furtively anymore? Sometimes I think there should be no art, no literature under these conditions. That the street should be our blank page, revolution our magnum opus, love our oeuvre. Been listening to Billy Ray Belcourt read from his novel A Minor Chorus. So I want to move from theory to the body, to embodiment, to to eros, sex, love, and how it relates to self and selfhood. Even when your protagonist calls his relationship to his friend River citational because they share interests in the same scholars. Even there, there's a certain charge to that intimacy, I think, that isn't entirely academic or scholarly, but suggests something more embodied and tender. And in your last book, your your memoir, you say that Judith Butler suggests that both language and style of behavior are citational, that they echo from a history of use And from there, you conclude that joy, then, is a politics of citation, which I love. Uh, Likewise, our protagonist in the new book says, What I wanted from sex, I wanted from writing, to feel more fully inside my body, without encumbrance, to experience embodiment as something other than a catch-22. I'd love to hear more about the sex in a minor course in this light. Because the anonymous sexual encounters in this book 
feel somehow like experiences of embodiment, however temporarily, but also paradoxically of the annihilation or the obliteration of the self sometimes too. And I'm not suggesting those are even opposites. Perhaps these two things are related, embodiment and the annihilation of the self. I'm not sure and I'm curious. Um, but, but talk to us about the sex in this book in relationship to embodiment and then in relationship to how embodiment is, a catch, is potentially a catch-22. In a novel of ideas, it's easy for the work to become disembodied. I think that the sex in the book is one of the ways I, I try to prevent that experience of total disembodiment. And there's the line in one of the chapters where the protagonist says or reflects that there are many nights where after writing, he would have sex because his sadness and his horniness had become inextricably entangled. It seems to me that writing is incredibly embodied and erotic. When I write, it is one of the few times where I do feel fully in my body. That maybe explains why I've written so much in my 20s. It's because I want to feel immersed in the world. But there's so much when you're queer and indigenous that keeps you out of a move from the world. Finding both sex and writing as correctives to that experience of alienation has been both good and bad. (laughs) Because to want every man you meet on the hookup to transform you is impractical. And naive, because sometimes these men want to harm you. I'm working on something now where a character says, the men I spoke to seem sometimes to want to to kill me more than they wanted to have sex with me. And so that's been an ongoing interest of mine, the paradoxical condition of sometimes wanting what destroys you. When your protagonist goes up to Northern Alberta to conduct these interviews, he he hooks up with anonymous men he finds on apps while he's there. And he has largely constructed his queer life and identity before this in the city in Edmonton. So this is his first time he's had sex in rural Alberta. And I wonder if this is one way you and the character diverge, not what I just said, but diverge insofar as I'm not sure he sees these sexual encounters as part of the book he is writing, or at least not in the same way that you do in the book that you are writing, mm-hmm. where, a good par- where a good portion of your book, A Minor Chorus, is really dedicated to these encounters, often in scene, and where sometimes after sex there is some post-sex talk where the unknown man in a way offers his own testimony or at least our protagonist meditates on what he says in a way that makes it feel this way. 
for instance, when he, when he hooks up with a 40-year-old white guy named Graham, who himself is in a heterosexual marriage, the protagonist says to us, anonymous sex is tantalizing partly insofar as it allows for suspension of individuality that makes it possible to be a non-person given over to animalistic urge. Perhaps this sort of metaphysical ambivalence was always the precondition for Graham's sense of self. But he also describes Graham's life as split in two, the time he spends with his wife and the time with men, which our protagonist describes as a time of self-making. So here again we have self-making and suspension of individuality happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Not that Graham's queer life involves the same questions as an indigenous queer life, but there is some overlap. And to me, it feels like whether or not your main character sees these encounters as part of the book, you most definitely do. And I, I think these people's lives sit alongside the interviews and the scholarly citations. Um, they're almost like interviews themselves, sometimes only physically revealing nonverbal interviews, but sometimes really emotional and verbal. And I guess I wondered if this is a third, I know we've mentioned two minor choruses, the, <laughs> the people you're in, indebted to and your protagonists are indebted to as, as um, academics or thinkers or writers, the, the people who are being interviewed intentionally and then the people who who somewhat accidentally end up in his life from these sexual encounters, but then offer their stories with him. As as this part of the novel, is this another chorus of the novel making in mm-hmm. a sense? I like that observation, probably because I think that during these sexual encounters, the protagonist becomes an object of analysis, both to the other person but also to himself the the sexual encounters are one of the few places where the critical lens is directed at himself i remember in early iterations of the novel wanting actually to subjugate the narrator i didn't want the details of his life to be central to this, the novel's plot and ideas. But then again, it felt incredibly disembodied and as though I was hiding something or the character was hiding something. Mm. And then I started writing these sex scenes that opened up this other dimension in the novel that I think link his pursuit of knowledge his commitment to art and his deep need of indications that another world is possible. Perhaps these sex scenes bring all of those things together because it is through human relations and intimacy that some of these more abstract ideas are put into practice they're translated into action yeah i can't i can't imagine this book without those scenes it's hard for me to imagine 
it feels like everything, like you say, gets enacted there. So I have one last little segment I was hoping we'd hear from the book. Cool. I'd never had sex in rural Alberta. The entirety of my erotic life had played out in cities across Canada, but predominantly in Edmonton. Anonymous sex and one night stands, which characterized the vast majority of my sexual experiences, rid the lust object of biographical depth. So I also couldn't confidently say I'd been with someone who had similarly been a self-loathing homo in a small town. Though perhaps that was more likely than not, Edmonton being something of a gay refuge in the prairies. Like others, when I moved to the city, I needed the dirt shoveled out of me with human hands. I had to learn, however, that a man at work could be mistaken for so much when in actuality he meant very little. It meant he was counting down the hours and minutes and seconds until he was unobligated. A bed wasn't always an extension of the future. Two nameless men rattling around in the dark sometimes just made each other dimmer and dimmer. I didn't question myself, didn't think twice before I knocked on a door in a part of the city I'd never been to. I was a regular accident entranced by my capacity to be disfigured by a hope that once fired would produce a kickback. What I made was derivative, but it shimmered nonetheless. I faced each new man with the same unwavering belief that he would wrench me from my past and save me from a life of rotten solitude. It never occurred to me that this could take place in Northern Alberta. Was rural sex different than urban sex, if such things could be said to exist? Maybe love really does mean the submission of power, Carl Phillips wrote in Reconnaissance. To what powers would I have to submit? When it was all over, would I want to burn the bed? Or would the memory be an infinite summer? We've been listening to Billy Ray Belcourt read from his debut novel, A Minor Chorus. So staying with this question of finding an embodiment that is not a catch-22, I'm thinking about the way you've written and talked about the body in different ways. For instance, your TED Talk called Gallstones and the Colonial Politics of the Future, where you look at how gallstones have a politic, uh, gallstones as a condition indigenous North Americans have the highest rate of. And the lines from Indian Coping Mechanism, another sticky dawn, the res opens its eyes, the past hiccups, dogs holler back, in a bed, someone who is loved is found dead from cancer or heart disease or mercury poisoning, which are history by other names. Thinking of these bodily conditions as history by other names, I wanted to ask you about having a body. You say in a blog post from years ago now entitled, <laughs> the, the blog post entitled, If I Have a Body, Let It Be a Book of Sad Poems. You, you say in that post that indigeneity troubles the idea of quote unquote having a body 
And somehow when I read this, I connect it to when you were on the panel with Adania Shibley, where you said, I'm serious about my indeterminacy. The lake is my ancestor, even if it outlasts me. But rescue me from this question and, and talk to us about having a body and how it is troubled by indigeneity in your mind, if it is. To me, it seems that colonialism works by removing an indigenous person's sense of autonomy over themselves, over their body. Some of the most acute forms of violence that occur in settler colonial states are biological. They're bodily. Indigenous peoples experience health disparities across the continuum of possible health disparities. There are constantly statistics and studies proving that we die sometimes as much as a dozen years before other Canadians. So to me, that means that the traumas of the 19th and 20th centuries were so intense and catastrophic that we're still experiencing their after effects inside our bodies. And so any kind of anti-colonial or even generally liberal attempts to remedy those past traumas needs to account for the cellular and biological ways that trauma lingers. In Canada, we've been undertaking, or the government has been undertaking a project of reconciliation, beginning with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the 2010s. The government wants to turn the pages of history to put the past to rest. To me, that seems impossible because indigenous experiences of embodiment are still so frenzied and unpredictable and world shattering. In my work, I want to grapple with what it means to still be in the world in the face of all these world shattering experiences. Well, to bring this into writing for a moment, in the preface of your first poetry collection, The Wound is a World, you say poetry is creaturely, resisting categorical capture, that it is an entity because our skin becomes its and its skin becomes ours that the lyric eye opens up on itself and particularities, and the poem brings us into our bodies and readies us for the touch and affection of others. But in the epilogue of the same collection, <laughs> you say that the wound is a world is obsessed with the unbodied. You quote Lauren Berlant, who said, love always means non-sovereignty, and you say, love is the process of becoming 
unbodied. At its wildest, it works up a poetics of the unbodied. And in a minor chorus, you say that evoking an I is an elegiac act. It kickstarts a losing game. Again, there seems to be this, this paradox, I think, that the lyric I, which off the page in the world, maybe we can connect to a coherent sense of a self and subject position, that that I readies us for the touch of others, but perhaps that the love itself that arises unbodies us, if, I, if I'm following this line of thought correctly. But I would love to hear the way you bring this into the actual writing here, um, which I think is brilliant. If you could just it, talk more about what this sparks for you. I'm going to continue with your thinking and suggest that if love ruins us or embodies us, poetry is one of the ways that we survive that experience of unbodied thing. And that there's some connection between love and poetry that is reparative. I think of um, the poet Richard Sykin, who I quote in the book and in my previous book, where he says, the enormity of my desire disgusts me. I think that poets are interested in enormous desires like love. Poetry is also an enormous desire in and of itself. One of my most enormous desires is a desire for another world. I'm not disgusted by it, though. Well, let's stay with um, language in relationship to these questions. In your memoir, you talk a lot about the trauma of being over-described, something I think we see in the novel in the sexual encounters where the protagonist's indigeneity can sometimes be something that the lover might either fetishize or something that is used to diminish or harm the protagonist. Um, you say in A History of My Brief Body, living as we do in the charred remnants of a time during which the voices of Indians were siphoned out of the theaters of culture and into the wastelands of law and order. You, a white and settler you, are beholden to a project of lessening the trauma of description. You say that each of your books, each poem, each story, works against the trauma of description, against the poverty of simplicity, and this is anti-colonial insofar as the colonial position is against opacity. I was hoping you could talk uh, a little more about the trauma of description in relationship to embodiment or, or perhaps in relationship to becoming unbodied, um, but even more so how the trauma of description informs the choices you make as a writer on the page. There's a long history in Canada, at the very least, probably also in the U.S., of considering Indigenous literature as simplistic and as being devoid of 
craft and technique. This has the effect of transforming indigenous literature into anthropological spectacles where our work somehow becomes about the solidification of white subjectivity that white people read our books in order to experience the difference between whiteness and indigeneity. That's incredibly problematic. <laughs> and I, since my second book, in the wake of some of the reception to my debut, my poetry collection, I've wanted to write difficult books in order to refuse the tyranny of, of over description and also to offer up a portrait of indigenous life that can't be co-opted into that anthropological frame that explodes that anthropological frame. Part of how I do that, I think is, is through my attention to sex and embodiment. At the very least, bringing into focus my complexity, my character's complexity, because so much has been said about us by those outside our communities that we have to, in our own ways, know ourselves differently. I think that one of the ways we do that is through sexual relations. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was in relationship to the Jack character in the novel, a cousin who seems to represent an alternate path the protagonist's life could have taken, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, Jack makes me think of your essay, An Indian Boyhood, where you talk about you and your twin brother, Jesse, and much of the way you talk about it feels like it is in relationship to description and selfhood. For instance, your indigenous father names both of you with cowboy-like names, Billy Ray and Jesse. Um, but you also say that everyone kept applying contrasting labels to you and your twin brother to differentiate you. Good, bad, masculine, feminine, academic, unruly, despite your own subjective sense of the two of you being intertwined, despite the two of you having a selfhood that felt intertwined, that your two selves were being narrativized and solidified and flattened by everyone else in a way that did not reflect your lived experiences. I like how this question of self and description plays out in the novel too. Um, just the act of meeting unknown people for sex, where it all starts with labels, how old the person is, what race, the size and shape of their body, their sexual preferences, perhaps. And sometimes what those th things represent play out exactly as one might expect them to. But, but sometimes the removing of clothes also becomes a removing of labels, even briefly. Um, but I also see this character, Jack, is connected to Jesse, um, and how even when Jack and our protagonist are briefly roommates, something about the way their lives have been described for them keeps them separate as if they were ships passing in the night. 
as if they weren't inhabiting the same house and space, the same city. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about Jack in this light or, or in other lights. Uh, he feels like a really important character in the book, even if he's not, he's not a central character, but something's happening with Jack's presence throughout. Jack does represent one of two possible outcomes for an indigenous life that the book is interested in, which is one of incarceration and police brutality and economic precarity. He's meant to stand in for the experience of total subjugation that a lot of indigenous people, indigenous men experience their entire lives. What does one do when one lives a life of ongoing subjugation is why I was interested in writing a character like Jack. And I do something at the end that I think is how I refuse to contribute myself to the tendency to simplify or over-describe. I wanted Jack to be able to want some other kind of way of life that resembles the protagonist's desire for another world. So we see in these two characters different but complementary longings that reveal the difficulties of the present. Well, two other threads that run throughout your work, I think, are questions of masculinity and questions of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And they feel like they're often in conversation with each other. Um, for instance, in your memoir, you call your dad's disorderly home a home that embodies an anti-authoritarian rhythm. You call it a feminist project because it is a socialization or democratization of the maternal function. And you've written quite a bit about violent acts done by indigenous men and how these acts are symptoms of performances of racialized masculinity where you say, quote, the trauma of colonialism erupting in the minds and bodies of men who then bombard the lives of women and girls, two-spirit people and queers. And to connect this to motherhood, you have a new short story out called One Woman's Memories, where the main character, Louise, she calls her adult son. And when she says to him, I want to talk to you about my past, where she ultimately shares her long ago desire for another woman prior to meeting her son's father. When she says, I want to talk to you about my past, the narration continues with these words. It is a foreign sentence. Neither of them has heard anyone utter it before. It occurs to Paul that he knows very little about his mother's past. What he knows is limited to images, brief anecdotes, old family jokes. He feels a pang of shame about this state of unknowing, 
If a mother is a shape of unknowing, then perhaps a son is a bit of dying light. It is never that simple, of course. I'm listening, Mom. You have my undivided attention. And I bring this up because it made me think of the lines in your latest book. To write out of North Alberta, I had to do so in a feminist mode. To insist on a form of gender that wasn't a natural disaster. But also the line, everywhere Indian men are in a struggle against gender. Because this line comes in the same place in the book where the protagonist's grandfather won't talk about his experiences as a child in the residential school. He won't talk about his past the way Louise in your new short story surprises her son and talks to him. And I wonder if somehow this silence might be something that not only might perpetuate certain forms of gender, forms that might be natural disasters, but also perhaps might connect back to not knowing the history of the reservations as prisons. Um, But either way, talk to us about what it means to write out of North Alberta in a feminist mode and how this relates to your examination of men in the book. Has me thinking that maybe the silence about the past is a masculinized silence. And that Indigenous women have become the historians of our collective lives, which can be a burden and which can let Indigenous men off the hook and questions of responsibility become blurrier in that framework. One of the central questions I had was about gender and colonial gender norms in particular as they exist in Northern Alberta. The character reflects that it seemed to him that there were two scripts available as a man in Northern Alberta, one of domination and the other of emotional unavailability. And he says that he, he had to figure out how to free himself from those scripts because he didn't want to live in a way that bulldozed others. I suppose that's something that all men have to decide to want because we are socialized into being little prisons in and of ourselves. But again, I didn't want to write directly about gendered violence because it's such a a difficult and traumatizing thing. I wanted to show that people, women have survived and continue to survive gendered violence in Northern Alberta. And that part of the project of any novel about Northern Alberta in the character's mind and in my mind should be the envisioning of other modes of gender that enable flourishing and coexistence for all. 
so this whole enterprise for the protagonist of leaving school, going to Northern Alberta to write a novel that has a form outside the lineage of inherited novel forms, one that involves encounters and engagements with members of his community on the reserve and his own past. The whole enterprise feels like it is one of risk uh, that he's choosing. Uh, he's, he's putting himself outside of the form of the university, outside the form of the novel. He's returning perhaps with hesitation and a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. But it all also orbits, I think, often silently around a greater sense of risk, which is the figure of his mother, a, a charged figure because he wasn't raised by her, but by his grandmother. And he had a longstanding anger about his mother's inability to mother. For a long time, he couldn't wholeheartedly trust her. And because he didn't know how to ask her how they could begin to heal, he can't bring himself to interview her for the book. He mentions the anger and the distrust in the past tense, which makes me wonder when he says that later he felt that motherlessness had also to do with history, if that suggests he found a way through by seeing his mother's history and his people's history as a framing, and here again, a theorizing perhaps, that freed him somewhat from only collapsing into his own individual pain. Some of the things you write include mother, the unarticulated, the misarticulated, silence, indifference, small talk, not deep talk. And a mother is a library seconds before the tornado strikes. But ultimately you say, this severance from a traditional notion of motherhood opened up to me a closeness with a queerer notion of motherhood, a more egalitarian distribution of the labor of caretaking, less a gendered burden, and more so a collective undertaking that is reciprocal. I guess I wanted to use this as a portal to ask you about mothering. Sometimes the sex scenes, post-sex, the quiet moments afterwards, felt like mothering to me as, mm -hmm. a re as a reader. And I also wondered if you saw the gesture of the book itself in this light, a minor chorus as an act of a more egalitarian distribution of the labor of caretaking um, or of storytelling for that matter. So the figure of the mother in the novel is a complicated one. And she says almost nothing in a book where all the characters say so much. I wanted to be honest to the experience of a lot of Indigenous people who aren't raised by their parents. And that the lack of a story about that experience shapes our lives. The character realizes that his motherlessness allowed him to see these other modes of mothering that aren't 
biologically determined. And I think it's a kind of political undertaking that he's interested in. Because maybe decolonization is about how we mother one another differently. I think decolonization is about how we care for one another in ways that don't require immediate proximity. So how we fight on behalf of our communities rather than simply fighting on behalf of her own flourishing. Well, a, a place that I wanted to end with you was with Utopia, which you've brought up about a future world or a world to come already in our conversation. And it's a topic that's more obviously present in the memoir than the novel, but I would love to hear you speak to it and into it. In, in your poetry debut, you say sadness and death seem to stain indigeneity as if co-constitutive and that you wanted to free sadness from apoliticized cages of pathology and the private to see bad affect as a ground instead for transformation to see the potential of sadness. And you ask, is it possible to share feelings of loneliness as a way to make new forms of collectivity, which reminds me of this gesture you do around motherlessness in a minor chorus, motherlessness as the grounds to create a new queer form of mothering. Um, when you were in conversation with your, your thesis advisor, uh, she mentioned how many times love is mentioned in your thesis. And you said that care plus possibility equals love that love is both a practice and something that has to do with futurity. Um, you call your memoir, History to My Brief Body, an ode to your grandmother and to the world to come. And you dedicate that book to those for whom utopia is a rallying call. You say, I can't promise I won't become snared in someone's lethal mythology of race. What I can do is love as though it will rupture the singularity of Canadian cruelty, irrespective of whether this is a sociological possibility. Here lies my poetic truth. And in the new book you say, I wanted my future novel to be like a valley of its making, to not be seen as someone trespassing onto already stolen land. I was hoping you could speak about utopia and futurity for you. I, I sense, without knowing what it is, um, a, perhaps a scholarly lineage behind this as well. Not, uh, there's definitely an emotional valence to this, but I also suspect that there is a, an academic one, per, possibly. But I, would mm -hmm. love, but I would love to hear about utopia and this idea of the future world. I'm always thinking about Jose Esteban Munoz, but especially his thinking around utopia. So in his book, Cruising Utopia, he argued that queerness wasn't yet here. It is an ideality that we pursue, but queer is in the present 
live in ways that suggest that utopia is possible that there are already kernels of utopia in the present and that that should be cause for celebration and protest and world building i think my poem the terrible beauty of the reserve which is a response of sorts to Saidiya Hartman's essay, The Terrible Beauty of the Slum, most overtly reveals my thinking around indigenous utopia. And in that poem, I say something like, um, about my own reserve, there's a, the Trans-Canada Highway cuts through it. And so people drive through the reserve all the time, non-indigenous people but they don't look at us. They don't look at the people on the reserve. They don't see our quiet joy, our everyday joy. Instead, they see depravity in other signs of race. And I say that that produces a kind of anonymity that is about freedom. We have the freedom of anonymity. And so we can live differently I think that everywhere indigenous people are enacting a future against the colonial present. And as I said earlier about most of the characters in the novel having already survived trauma, the novel is less overtly but nonetheless still interested in the minor, subtle, and sometimes unperceivable ways that Indigenous people elide or escape subordination and insist on their right to be free. Well, thinking about futurity and the way you're um, writing in all three genres has resisted subordinating yourself to any of the three. Um, (laughs) with your novel already hardly out in the world and already long listed for the Giller prize and already a national bestseller in Canada. Um, do you have a sense of your next future book, what it might reach for or what you will attempt to rupture in, <laughs> in, uh, in, uh, grappling with a new form? I, working on some stories. So I did turn to another form, but maybe surprisingly, and I hope not too disappointingly, I've attempted to be less formally disruptive. Mm. I thought I would try to commune with and reason with the form of the short story yeah well i love the new short story that just came out thank you 
Well, thank you for being on the show today, Billy Ray. Yeah, it was such a pleasure, such thoughtful questions, and I'll be thinking about them for a while. We've been talking today to Billy Ray Belcourt about his debut novel, A Minor Chorus. been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's episode is recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift, home office, me, David Naiman. You can find more of Billy Ray Belcourt's work at billy-raybelcourt.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Join our brainstorm of future guests. Receive the supplementary resources with each conversation and choose from a wide variety of other potential enticements, whether becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to any number of gifts and collectibles from past guests, from out-of-print chapbooks by Ursula K. Le Guin, to a personalized handmade Korean wrapping cloth from Mary Kim Arnold, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you not to mention the ever-growing bonus audio archive, which includes things like Dion Brand reading from two forthcoming books in 2023, Kinesia Lubrin's Code Noir and Christina Sharp's Ordinary Notes, readings by Alice Oswald, John Keane, Ada Limon, and many others. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Alice Evelyn Yang in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.